Calvin is wanting us to recognize that in our fallenness and our brokenness, there's still a freedom to make choices and to order life and to pursue the things of this life in which we do exercise choice. However, relative to God, since we are hostile to God, we're blind to his truth, we stand in opposition to his will. You're listening to episode 136 of Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast. In this broadcast, the faculty of Mid-America discuss Reformed theology and cultural issues, all from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchibor, Director of Marketing here at the Seminary. Thank you for tuning in. Last time, Dr. Beach affirmed the Reformed teaching on free will, that Christians do indeed have free will, but it's a will that's only awakened and enabled by the grace of God to freely obey His will. Not a will of her own volition, a will left in darkness. Well, in our Reformed heritage, we love to reflect on the work of John Calvin, of course. So, what did he think of free will? Well, you may be surprised to learn that he affirms what Dr. Beach was talking about, but that he was a little cautious in using the exact terminology of free will. In this second session, dealing with the question of free will, do believers have free will, we want to shift gears a bit from the first session. The first session answered in the affirmative that Christians do have free will, being born again of the Spirit, being new creations, having their own hearts and dispositions transformed, and yet it's not a kind of freedom where it allows any sort of boasting or self-assurance or self-confidence. It's, uh, we're, it's only the first small steps on the way of our full uh, transformation and sanctification in Christ. At the same time, in this second session, I want to offer a slightly different perspective in why some in the Reformed tradition been hesitant to talk about free will, and none other than John Calvin is an example of this. Not that he denies to believers free will, but he's quite concerned about the way the term is often used and understood and misused and misunderstood, that he prefers not to use that kind of uh, locution. So, we want to explore how Calvin approaches this topic, and particularly how he does that in his Institutes of the Christian Religion in Book 2, and in Chapter 2 of that book, he has a, a section, Man, as it's entitled, Man Has Now Been Deprived of Freedom of Choice and Bound Over to Miserable Servitude. And, of course, he's talking about uh, what happens to us given the fall of Adam into sin and our participation in that. So when he comes to this question of human freedom and the enslavement of the will, before he directly answers that, he first urges us to reckon with what he calls perils that plague the, the phrase freedom of choice. And he mentions two specific uh, perils piggybacking on St. Augustine, uh, two errors to avoid. 
first, when when humans are denied all uprightness, it's their instinct to take occasion for complacency. Oh, I'm broken down. I'm fallen. Uh, I don't. I'm not upright. Well, then I'm not blameworthy. There's nothing I can do about it. About it. I have no ability to pursue righteousness, and so they become complacent and excuse themselves. That's error number one. Error number two is of the opposite direction, that nothing can be credited credited to humans without depriving God of his honor and without humans uh, themselves falling into ruin through their brazen confidence. So the first error to be avoided is complacency. The second is false boasting. So in addressing these two faults in order to address this question, Calvin says that although we're empty of good and deprived of freedom given this fall, we still should aspire to both so that in seeing our poverty, we're not to acquiesce to passivity. Rather, let us be aroused from our inactivity. And then in addressing the second fault, this this brazen confidence, Calvin reminds us that humans, even in a state of integrity, with all the blessed endowments intact, were not permitted to boast in and of themselves. So Adam could not boast in himself. Even less now that we're fallen and cast into this extreme disgrace, his words, may we venture to credit ourselves for any kind of an achievement. Rather, what we need to do is recognize God's goodness in us, confess our own poverty before him, give all glory to God, look to him for help, and not flatter ourselves as if we're still upright and fine, which is what most people do today, of course. Turning to this very specific question now, Calvin surveys the history of the doctrine of free will in this chapter, and he begins with the ancient philosophers, moves on to the church fathers, and then to the more sophisticated discussion in the Middle Ages. And the philosophers, for their part, argued that reason— is a sufficient guide for right conduct. So in other words, your mind tells you what's good and you simply do it. The will is simply subject to it and uh, will do what reason tells it is good and fine. And many of the church fathers followed this lead, but Calvin disputes this somewhat and finds himself more in agreement with Augustine who was, uh, like him, hesitant with this phrase, free will. Isn't it better to say the will's unfree? Now, in evaluating this, Calvin notes that uh, in the schools, three kinds of freedom are distinguished. Now, we don't think about this very often, but first there's a freedom from necessity, there's a freedom from sin, and third, a freedom from misery. Now, this is what Calvin wants to say. The first of these, freedom from necessity, which would be the necessity of compulsion, something uh, attached to you that forces you, that coerces you. And yeah, do, do we want to uh, affirm that we have a kind of freedom from coercion 
And Calvin says, yes, you can't be a moral agent and under a necessity of compulsion, sort of the twisting arm in which you can, uh, you have to cry uncle and do, you're coerced to do what you do. No. So there is a freedom from that kind of necessity. But are we free from sin? Calvin's going to say, well, no, we're not free from that. In fact, that's what we're in bondage to. Where we have this evil disposition, these evil desires, and that's what defines us. And then we're likewise not free from the misery that goes with uh, the, those sinful desires and the fallout. So if we follow him in the recognition of these sorts of distinctions, he says it will be indisputable that free will, now listen carefully, is not sufficient to enable man to do good works unless, and there's that unless, he be helped by grace, indeed by special grace, which only the elect receive through regeneration. So like the Heidelberg Catechism is saying, uh, are you, do you have free will? Well, no, uh, you can't of yourself do what's good and right unless you're helped by grace, and then a special grace that brings regeneration, and then, well, yeah, then yes. So returning to his discussion of this freedom from compulsion, Calvin again asserts that even fallen humans have a freedom of decision. And this doesn't mean that they have a free choice equally of good and evil, but it only means that a person acts wickedly by will by their own will, by their own desires, their own uh, dispositions, and not by some external compulsion. So Calvin says to label this sort of freedom with the noble title free will when we're such willing slaves to a fallen nature is not helpful. He, interesting quote of his, he says, I abhor contentions about words but I have scrupulously resolved to avoid those words which signify something absurd, especially, and here's the big part, when pernicious error is involved. So coming to the real problem of why he does not like this phrase, free will, he says, how few men are there who when they hear free will attributed to man, do not immediately conceive him to be the master of both his own mind and will, able of his own power to turn himself either toward good or evil. The term leads to ruinous self-assurance. So you see what Calvin's done. He's not denying that there's a, a kind of free will for the believer, but because the phrase is so immediately misunderstood and abused, eh, he's going to steer clear of it. Again, looking at Augustine, he concedes this. If anyone can use this word without understanding it in a bad sense, I shall not trouble him on this account. And then he adds, but I hold that because it cannot be retained without great peril, it will, on the contrary, be a great good for the church if it be abolished. Well, that was Calvin's view, but not all who followed Calvin, even in Geneva, the theologians that followed in his, in his path, like even Francis Turretin, would share that 
assessment. Because there's also a danger when you deny free will in any sense, in any legitimate sense, even for the reborn believer, you fall into other sorts of errors and uh, problems. But for his own part, Calvin wants us to understand the error that so often puffs us up when we use the phrase free will, when in fact we need to recognize our own calamity and poverty and nakedness and disgrace and how cast down we've become apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And he wants us to learn humility, a dependency to look for God's help and grace, and not to uh, depend upon our natural gifts of reason and, and act as if the fall has not damaged our will and our reason to supply good judgment to us. Now, more specifically, Calvin takes up uh, the corruption that also has affected the faculty of the intellect, the power of understanding or the faculty of the intellect is not without any effect or value pertaining to things in this life, he says, but its power regarding things above or the life to come, the things of faith, if you will. Uh, that's another matter. He, he says this, there's, there's one kind of understanding of earthly things, there's another of heavenly things. Earthly things he calls that which do not pertain to God or his kingdom or true justice or the blessedness of the future life, but which have their significance in relationship with regard to the present life and are, in a sense, confined within its bounds. But he calls heavenly life the pure knowledge of God, the nature of true righteousness, the mysteries of his kingdom— so the first class then includes things like government and the household and mechanical skills and the liberal arts. But the second kind has very much to do with knowledge of God, his will, and living in accord with his will in all things. And his point is by natural instinct, uh, we as humans foster and preserve our human society, and things of this sort. So the affairs of civic life have a certain order, but the affairs and the ways we proceed with a life directly in relation to God, his will, and, the, and these sorts of things, these are under a, a more resolute, broken uh, kind of bondage that makes us limp and stagger. We're much... Well, we're we're blind. We're uh, this is where we see this gross inability show up. So Calvin is trying to sort out uh, the different sort of choices that we find in our purview. It's one thing, as we noted in an earlier session, to choose a pair of shoes. It's another thing to. Uh, choose to love Christ and entrust your life to his saving work on your behalf. The one sort of decision can uh, be guided by uh, our reason and understanding in a way that's fitting and suitable, but the other, we find ourselves in a kind of bondage, a blindness, a disposition of hostility toward God that in which we're wholly unable to help ourselves. So Calvin 
is wanting us to recognize that in our fallenness and our brokenness, there's still a freedom to make choices and to order life and to pursue the things of this life, civilly, in mechanical skills, in teaching, in various arts and all of that, in which we do exercise choice. But we always act out of our dispositions and desires. However, relative to God, since we are hostile to God, we're blind to his truth, we stand in opposition to his will, he's going to altogether affirm that we do not have free will since it's so open to people thinking, oh, I do have free will, therefore I can freely choose God on a whim or out of my own power or strength or on my own desires or dispositions. And of course, that is not true. He sums up human fallenness and our being unsanctified and even our power of understanding this way. We see among all humankind that reason is proper to our nature. It distinguishes us from brute beasts just as they, by possessing feeling, differ from inanimate things. Now, because some are born fools or stupid, that defect doesn't obscure the general grace of God, a kind of common grace. Rather, we are warned by that spectacle that we ought to ascribe what is left to us to God's kindness. Some men excel in keenness, others are superior in judgment, still others have a readier wit to learn this or that art. In this variety, God commends his grace to us, lest anyone should claim as his own what flowed from the sheer bounty of God. So even pertaining to things that aren't, you know, salvific issues. Uh, a common grace of God prevails that enables human life, that bestows gifts upon even fallen people and things, uh, giving different people different gifts, excelling at different tasks and abilities and all of this, even that, uh, is a commendation of divine grace because we find ourselves apart from it in a kind of bondage. But with respect to heavenly life, there alone we find the necessity of a special regenerating grace so that we can know God, know his fatherly favor for us, know the way of salvation, know our frame as weak and dependent, and know the rule of his word, the rule of his law. Otherwise, we're simply fallen in sin, we're blind, we're ignorant, we're lost, we're without help, but this is what the divine rescue comes to do. It's a change of nature, a renovation within us, a uh, perfecting or a, a rather than perfecting, a bringing about, a readdressing, and enabling the faculty of volition, the power of volition, the faculty of the will. So as fallen, our power of volition in being a determiner of choice is subject to bondage, almost like an animal is only subject to its instincts. However, with rebirth, with 
a new disposition, with a new heart, new desires. A man, says Calvin, desires to follow what is good, uh, is enabled to follow it. Apart from that, unable, still not able to follow. But given uh, rebirth and new life, we can be delivered from the slavery to sin, the yoke of sin, the bondage of sin, and the new birth that comes by the Holy Spirit. Next week, Dr. Beach will butt heads with the key opposition to a Calvinist or Reformed point of view, known as Libertarian Free Will. Stay tuned for that. For more episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for, subscribe, and drop a review for a Mid-America Reformed Seminaries Roundtable podcast. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.